Well, good evening. Thanks for braving the uh, cold weather, north wind. Uh, just hang on, it's going to be 75 on Saturday. <laughs> Welcome to Oklahoma, right? I'm glad you're here. This uh, lesson this evening ends the first section of Genesis. It's called the prehistory, and it's chapters 1 through 11. And that part of Genesis is sort of prehistoric, if you will, meaning it's, uh, it's more difficult to ground that in a specific time period of history. But it paves the way, that prehistory paves the way for everything else that's going to happen. You've seen some great themes in the Bible, and now the story is set. And as we launch into our next lesson next week, we're going to begin some of the great epic stories of the Bible. And I think they're going to come alive now that we've set it in its context of the prehistory. And as we go through that, we'll be setting the stage for connections to the book of Revelation. You're going to hear a lot of these things connecting. What we've talked about so far has set the stage for really the whole trajectory of humanity. We talked about the garden. We talked about Cain and Abel. Cain wanting God on his own terms and realized that God wasn't willing to be on his team, but he could be on God's team. But Cain wanted things his way, and so you see not only the disobedience in the garden, then you see Cain degenerates into murder, and then from Cain all the way down to the time of Noah, mankind sort of goes its own way until you get to chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 5, says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of humanity was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So you see this fall in the garden, and then you see this downward spiral of humanity till you get the entire generation of Noah, and God looks and says, there's no good here. The, the intention of our heart is evil. And in fact, this, I want you to think of it this way. This self-centeredness, what begins with a self-centeredness, becomes self-absorption. And that always leads to the devaluing of other people, devaluing of other lives. Self-centeredness consumes us. Remember the idea of sin crouching at your door? When it comes in, it doesn't just stay. It wants to take over your whole house. That self-centeredness grows into absorption, and that always ends up with devaluing other people. And that's what you see with Cain and Abel. It leads to murder. It leads to the ultimate devaluing of other people. By the way, as long as we're here, I have to tell you this. Let's start making a couple of connections. This is why in the New Testament, all through the New Testament, you're going to see this idea over and over about death and resurrection. Obviously, literally, in the life of Jesus Christ. But, for example, in Romans, we hear that when we're buried with Christ, it's as though we died with him and we're raised to walk in newness of life. It also says our old man, our old self was crucified with him. Book of Colossians talks about put off, you died to your old self and the way it used to live and you live in Jesus Christ. Jesus, remember he talks to Nicodemus, what does he say? You must be born again or born anew. This idea of dying to self is 
intimately and directly related to what we've been talking about. This self-centeredness consumes us. You get the ultimate devaluing of humanity. The solution, just like in the time of Noah, is not a self-help program or a nicotine patch or some kind of a rehab. It's really death. We have to die to self and be reborn a new creature in Christ. That's exactly what you see happening in the time of Noah. You have an entire generation whose only hope is the next generation. And so the flood comes and humanity goes through death and rebirth. We're introduced to an interesting concept there that you're going to see over and over again. You'll certainly see it in the book of Revelation. That's the idea of a remnant. If you remember, we talked about Noah and his family were just a small portion of all those people, but God could take that small portion and begin again. He could build off of something small. And you remember the faith lesson for us? That happens generationally for us as well. Sometimes changes in your and my life, they literally affect the trajectory of generations to come. But even in our lives, remember we talked about how God can take a little bit of faith because sometimes we think, I'm kind of like the generation of Noah. I've done too many bad things. I'm too old to make any good or make any difference. That's not the lesson of Noah. The lesson of Noah is God can take a little bit of faith and turn you into a new creature. So you see this idea of a remnant and God rebuilding, the idea of God looking forward, because ultimately God doesn't turn his back on humanity. Instead, he begins to, he turns toward us in our rebellion and our sin to embrace us and bring us back. Again, you're going to see the parallel with Jesus. Now, this is God in the time of Noah. Instead of saying, I'll just wipe the whole thing out. I'm done with you guys. I'm through. You're, just, you're all gone. Instead, he says, I'll take Noah. I'll begin again. And you'll see through the rest of the scripture is going to be that story, some remarkable events that God's going to do to embrace us, Jesus Christ, what does he do? He's, what did he say his mission was? I came to seek and save that which was lost. In other words, it's not that we were looking for him, he came looking for us. So you see that theme of God doesn't turn his back on us. That's also encouraging. I don't know about you, but there have been many times in my life and I thought if God could hear my prayers now, I don't know why, because I wouldn't listen to them. You know, we can feel that way about ourselves. But the consistent message of the scripture is, is he does not turn his back on us. He comes to find us and pursues us. So what you see happening in these stories, these real life stories, are playing out ideas that God's going to use throughout all of humanity. And frankly, in your and my life as well. Well, as God turns toward us in the book of Genesis, the flood generation, then Noah, and he begins again, he's going to do it with a different method. And this method is very important. He's going to make a covenant or a contract. The word testament, covenant, contract, all the same idea and it's all the same word. He's going to make a contract with humanity in the person of Noah. And that's where our story picks up in Genesis chapter 9. So, remind you of our text number. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Let's look at Genesis chapter 9. So God comes to Noah and he says the flood is finished. He's going to begin again and he blessed Noah and his sons and he said 
be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. That's interesting because that's the original claim for Adam and Eve, isn't it? Adam and Eve corrupted that desire, but God's desires are still the same. He says, go fill the earth. He says, but things have changed. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and every creature that moves. They're all given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. By the way, because of this passage, people understand that before the flood, people didn't eat animals. There were no barbecue places at all. In fact, it was all salad places. I mean, it was vegetarian, that all humanity were vegetarians up until this time. And so now God says, I give you all the animals of the earth to eat, and they're gonna, the fear of you will come upon them. The harmony is still broken, isn't it? God's redeeming us, but the harmony is broken. We are alienated in, to some extent, and we're still alienated from creation. And in fact, uh, the Jews believe that this accommodation of humanity with Noah was a compromise. It's never been God's desire that we should kill animals and eat them. That in the garden, that's not the intent, but that God allowed that to give us a channel for those fallen impulses. In other words, this, instead of Cain murdering his brother Abel, well, go hunting, right? In other words, this was an outlet. They thought that it was a compromise. And in fact, if you're familiar with all the dietary restrictions in the law of Moses, which is going to come much, much later, if you're not, once you start on the book of Leviticus tonight, you probably won't finish it before you doze off. But there are all these dietary rules, and the Jews thought, and by the way, a lot of those dietary rules make no sense at all. I mean, they just make no sense. Some of them you can say, well, maybe that's hygienic. Nah. They don't make any sense. And the Jews said, I'll tell you why it doesn't make sense, because this was never God's original intention. And he's reminding us that this is kind of arbitrary. So the idea of uh, people being vegetarian, but now God makes an accommodation. He said, but you must not eat meat that has the lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, the life of a human, I will surely demand an accounting. I'll demand an accounting from every animal, from each man, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Here you see the fundamental basis of Judeo-Christian understanding the scriptures of the sanctity of human life. Is that every life is valuable, not because of its economic productivity, not because of your good looks or how nice a person you are, but fundamentally we're created in the image of God. That is a huge departure from our culture today is that our culture fundamentally does not agree with that. In other words, your life is valuable in a Darwinian sense only insofar as you are useful. Now, you may not get people to say that, but that is exactly what is believed. Pick up your newspaper, you'll see that all over the place. That drives a lot of decisions. That is not a Christian way of thinking. Christian way of thinking is there is inherent worth in every human being and that's what you'll see motivating Christian efforts in the world, is that everyone has inherent worth. He says, but increase and be fruitful in number and multiply in all the earth. Then he moves on, he says, to Noah and his sons, I'll establish a covenant or a contract with you at this point and all your descendants after you. And so we are all in some sense bound by this because this covenant with Noah 
is actually with him and all of his descendants. So Noah, the Noahide covenant is what this is called. The covenant with Noah really means a covenant with us. He simply was our representative as our forefather, if you will. He says, I'll make this with all creatures. I'll establish my covenant with you. Here's what, I will never again cut off all the life of the earth by the waters of a flood. There will never be a flood to destroy the earth. And this is the sign of that covenant I'm making is that uh, I've set my rainbow in the clouds. Rainbow is our word, bow is what it says. And so in those days, the idea was a bow was obviously an offensive weapon. And so God is in a sense saying, I'm gonna take my anger, my righteous indignation at your rebellion, and I'm gonna take my weapon, if you will, this is metaphorical, and I'm gonna set it up there so you can see that I'm not here to destroy you. I am here to reclaim you or redeem you. That's the significance of the rainbow. It's God placing his bow in the, in the clouds. And so this will be the sign of the covenant, and it will be a sign forever between us that this will be our covenant. This is called the Noahide covenant. So God begins to deal with this in a different way. And I'll tell you how Jews traditionally understand it. For Jewish people, there's going to be the covenant with Moses. It's going to come much, much later in time. But in the law of Moses or the covenant with Moses, Jews understand that they are required to observe 613 commandments. That's observant Jews. They're supposed to observe 613 commandments. And of course, by the time of Jesus, you had all these additional man-made rules that numbered far more than 613. But for you and for me, we are required as descendants of Noah to keep this contract with Noah. And here are the seven things that you are supposed to do. According to the Talmud, <clears throat> pardon me, this is not in the Bible. This is the sayings and the understanding of the Jewish sages that we are all obligated to do this. First is justice, establish justice in the, on the earth that we should refrain from blasphemy in other words, respect God, idolatry, worshiping anything but God, all forms of sexual immorality, refraining from bloodshed or murder, refraining from robbery, and then not eating meat with the blood still in it, which was considered a very pagan practice at that time. The idea that there's something special about the lifeblood of an animal. There's a, a blood is representative of taking of that life. So, those are the seven things that you're supposed to do. And today, as a matter of fact, if you're a Gentile, Jew, observant Jews would say to you, if you want to be one of the people of God, one of the God-fearing people, that's what you need to do. You don't have to do 613 commandments, you need to do this. In fact, in the United States, in 1983, a famous rabbi, for those of you that are, and you may not be, familiar with the Kabad movement, this was the Rebbe of the Kabad movement. It's a Jewish Orthodox movement in the United States and in our town, by the way. His name was Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and he rejuvenated uh, this idea that Jews should reach out to non-Jews or Gentiles and bring this idea of the Noahide covenant and call all of society to at least do this. Do justice, respect God, don't pursue idols, sexually moral people who do not rob and steal, 
and who establish courts of justice and are very interested in justice. You'll see that thread, by the way, run through the Jewish people through all of time. And that's because of this idea, this covenant with God. But those are the requirements the Jews would say you and I need to do to have a share in the world to come. There's a saying in the Talmud that says all Israel has a share in the world to come, meaning, well, our terms, goes to heaven. Or in other words, is, is accepted into the afterlife. But for you and me, we're not Jews, so what do we need to do? If we follow those rules, then their belief is that we would be God-fearing Gentiles and we too would have a share in the world to come. So this is the Noahide covenant, and the, the key idea here is this is how God is going to deal with people. This came up in New Testament times. This is kind of a little detour, but I want to explain something in the book of Acts while we're here. In New Testament times, as in the book of Acts, as they're out there taking the good news to everybody, not just to Jews, to everyone, well, you've got Christians who used to be Jews, they grew up Jewish, and you have Christians, they all believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who didn't used to be Jews, and they grew up doing all kinds of stuff, you know, eating pulled pork sandwiches and stuff that the Jews didn't do. So when they came together, the Jews said, man, you guys are just pagans. You know, you just don't know much about God. And you know, you guys need to do some things. First of all, you need to all be circumcised. That was a big hurdle, all right, as you can probably understand. It was kind of a real, not such a selling point. We're all going to be circumcised, and you've got to follow the dietary rules. In other words, you kind of got to be a good Jew before you can be a Christian. Well, in the early church, Paul said, no, this is not what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus calls us to holiness, but he didn't call us to be Jews first. And so they had this council in Jerusalem, and in Acts chapter 15, you read this letter. This is a little letter that James and Peter and Paul, they wrote an open letter to all the Christians out there, and it says this, and watch, you're going to see the Noahide covenant. To the Gentile believers in, in all the lands, we've heard that some of us went out and have disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we agreed to choose some men and send them with Barnabas and Paul, and we want to let you know that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements, and this is a summary of the Noahide covenant. It says you abstain from food sacrifice to idols, idolatry from blood, the meat of strangled animals, sexual immorality. You will do good to avoid these things. And so you kind of see this thing all the way back from Genesis in really informing the early church. It said, look, you don't have to become a Jew to be a Christian, but you have to do what's required of every human being. And so they said, keep the Noahide covenant, and we're all going to be brothers in Christ, even though some keep the dietary rules, some don't. Does that make sense? So this idea of the Noahide covenant is something that, that really does run through a lot of Scripture. And it's something that uh, Jews would say, every human being is going to be held accountable. From a Jewish point of view, on Judgment Day, that's what you will be judged by. Well, let me pause there with the Noahide Covenant and see what questions we have, because then I want to develop. You'll watch how the scriptures are going to develop this idea. In the garden, did the animals kill and eat each other? Were they predatory? In the garden, did the animals kill or eat each other? You don't see that specifically spelled out in the text, but the implication and a, and a traditional understanding is, no, they did not. 
And so you remember those prophecies in Isaiah, or later in the prophets where it talks about the lion and the lamb will lay down together and even the animals won't threaten each other? That's understood to be a restoration of the harmony of creation. Remember I said in the garden, not only did we break our harmony with God, we broke our harmony with creation, and then in Cain and Abel you realize also with each other. So we broke this alienated from God, from creation, and with each other. So it's traditionally understood that no, they did not. All of creation was, was harmonious. There was no wide world of nature videos, lions jumping on the antelopes, kill them, you know, none of that. And so it's not spelled out, but that's a traditional understanding. And that's a traditional understanding of the world that the Messiah would restore or will restore. Good question. Okay. We have two different phrases. We have meat with the lifeblood still in it, and we have meat of strangled animals. Can you tell us what those things mean and what they mean to us today? Why do we care about that? Yes, there are actually three phrases. One is refrain from blood. That's kind of gory, but you've had dinner. Oh, you just had dinner. I'm sorry. Anyway, refrain from blood, the eating uh, strangled animals where the blood's left in it. They're, this has happened in history. You and I, this is not USDA approved. So we don't, we don't really do this. So the blood, blood of strangled animals, or Eat, this is gross enough, eating an animal while it's still alive. Those are the three things those phrases are talking about. And the kind of the thought is, is that's not right. There's a fundamental wrongness about that. And so it's a prohibition. It's not, I, I would hope it's not applicable uh, to us. That's not, that's not our practice. The Jews still uh, designate certain butchering practices as kosher? and others as non-kosher? Do those things apply to us? Right, the whole, the idea of being kosher, which means following all the dietary rules with preparation, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you can eat together, what you can't eat together. Then you have other rules, what you can wear together, what you can't wear together. So all of those rules, just wrap that all up into the dietary requirements. That was one of the early arguments is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, shouldn't you have to do those things to demonstrate ritual purity but then also obedience and the early church said no romans says no one is going to be justified by works of the law meaning you don't get right with god by doing all these rules those rules were there to show you like a school teacher training you to show you that you could not attain holiness. You couldn't be worth God by yourself. And so now you understand the good news of why Jesus came and why grace is really so amazing. So no, those don't apply to us. And the New Testament says, no, you misunderstand. If you're trying to earn righteousness by keeping all those rules, you're completely missing the point. You can't. The point of it was is to let you know you have to have Jesus Christ. So we do not. But the early church, those early believers said, wait a minute, these heathen Gentiles, at least they ought to, you know, follow some of the rules. And, and the answer was no. That's not really what saves you. I don't think I asked the question very well. Um, in respect to the That's kosher. a nice way of saying you didn't answer the right question. <laughs> See how harmoniously this works? 26 years, I know exactly what she meant. 
You're very gracious. The kosher rules for butchering yes. that are designed to prevent these things, right. do they not also apply to us today? Right, no. The, the regular rules for butchering will avoid these things, I mean, in America. So yes, I understand what you're saying. Okay, on to another subject. <laughs> Let's try another question. Do we, do we know who Noah's father was? Do we know who Noah's father was? There's a gene, I have skipped the genealogies, by the way, simply because you just can't, I mean, you can't cover everything in here, at least in our time frame. So yes, if you're interested in the genealogies, uh, you will just need to, uh, the increasing corruption on the earth, and you get to Noah and the flood, you're gonna get Adam's descendants all the way to Noah, back in chapter five or so. So I'll just leave that with you. There are actually several interesting genealogies, but they seemed like side detours for us. So yes, you can learn all about Noah's family tree, who the good guys were, who the bad guys were. Okay, this is another little detour, but it keeps coming back up. Nobody's asked, where are the dinosaurs? <laughs> where are the dinosaurs? Okay. I'm going to give you a couple points of view on the dinosaurs because it's going to depend on, I'm, I'm going to give you what, what I'm going to consider Christian points of view. Now I understand some of you are going to say, no, that view's wrong. Understand, both of these views are not necessarily right, but they're both Christian, in, and here's what I mean by that. They acknowledge the supremacy of God and that God created it and God did what he said here. The difference of opinion might be how did he do it, and how do we understand the text? And again, I realize I'm painting with a broad brush, and you're gonna go, but there's a verse here that says this. Yes, and there's a verse there that says that. Again, there's no dispute about the supremacy of God, and he did what he was gonna do. I feel like I need to tell you that, because as I give you these options, I'm not giving you the non-Christian options, the part where there is no God, it makes no sense, everything's random. But basically, there are two fundamental flows of thought here. One is, it kind of ties, let me just do the age of the earth thing. Young earth, remember we talked about that, who read that first Genesis 1 in a way that says these are effectively six 24-hour days, and then you add up all the generations, and the earth is somewhere between six and 10,000 years old. Young earth. Old earth. Don't require that Genesis 1 be understood as six 24-hour days, understand God did it, God did it the way he said he did it, but not necessarily in that time frame and that God may have used processes that he created. Geological processes, even some evolutionary, not Darwinian processes, but evolutionary processes that he is guiding and that the earth could easily be 13.7 billion years old, not six to 10,000 years. So I'm painting with a very broad brush, but those are kind of two ways of understanding how God might have done it. Back to the dinosaurs. Six to 10,000 years old, dinosaurs, compressed time frame here, right? So you have a very compressed time frame. So you do have dinosaurs around. Most people understand that dinosaurs were on the ark, not full grown. Dinosaurs are on the ark, come through the ark, ice age after the ark. This, I'm compressing a lot of thinking here into this, into the young earth theory. They get off the ark, ice age, they don't make it, no coats, oops, left those before the flood. And so they die, and then 
time moves on. Now, I know some of you are saying, wait, I can't square the geologic record with that or the fossil record with that. There are folks who, who would have some, some good arguments about that. So, in general, most people young Earth think that they made it through the ark, but then they were killed later with the ice age that followed that. Old Earth, you can just read, you have a difference of opinion, but you could read more of a secular science book. Long period of time, they were there, they died out over that long, long period of time. Uh, so you've just got much more time to work with. So dinosaurs look more like you've kind of been taught that, you know, a little purple Barney really did live at one time and he managed to have a TV show for children and, and then he died off. So I hope that's somewhat helpful, but basically the dinosaurs in both versions have become extinct. The only question is what time frame and how did they do it? Neither would say there were no such thing as dinosaurs. It's, it's really more the timing and how they happen. One would argue maybe they're extinct because of a geological event. Others would say no, they came through the flood, but then perished in the ice age. So again, I'm leaving out a lot of details, but that's basically why the dinosaurs are not going to appear here very much. A couple of references in some of the older, older parts of the Bible, you'll see a reference to a behemoth and Leviathan. For example, those are words, Hebrew words, that we don't know exactly what they mean. Some people think those are references to creatures, dinosaurs. It's, it's difficult to be conclusive, but if you want to go into this in detail, you'll find all kinds of speculation around it. But the scripture itself isn't precise about it, which means it isn't a matter of great importance to the scripture itself. So hopefully that's helpful. Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Is this a reference to the death penalty today? Um, good question. Is it a reference to the death penalty? Actually, there's a pretty little wordplay in there that time doesn't let me get into, but that's a pretty little poem, a little chiastic structure. You know, if you're shedding the blood of a man, by man your, your blood be shed. There's a sense of justice there. In other words, there's going to be called for an accountability. Some people will understand that this authorizes the death penalty, that the responsible punishment for murder is death. And some codes of law have even said accidental, you know, manslaughter, the punishment was death. You see in the Mosaic Code, the law of Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because frankly, that was fairer than what they'd been doing. You see with Jesus, though, God moving humanity in a different trajectory, the idea of forgiving. I say that all to say this. Yes, uh, if you understand the New Testament to say that the government has the ability to do capital punishment, and that's okay, and that is a, a very reasonable way to understand the New Testament, you will see consistency here. It is possible, however, to hold the opinion Again, I'm not telling you these are right or wrong, but Christians can sincerely hold the opinion that yes, in history there is this sense of justice, but that in our era as Christians, we are not bound to kill someone just because they murdered someone, that we don't have to do capital punishment. And in fact, it might be more consistent with the redemptive plan of God not to. So I'm simply saying one can hold those two opinions. However, this passage would certainly indicate and lays the groundwork for the idea of an accounting would be required. 
And so capital punishment was certainly a part of uh, the Mosaic Code, the, the law of Moses. So essentially, yes. If all of humanity descended from Noah's family, where did different races come from? Good question. Where did different races come from? It's fundamentally the same question as where did Cain's wife come from? I mean, so it's going to be a combination of uh, people then spreading out, whether they're, if you think the flood is a local event, the opinion would be that it wasn't global when it says it flooded the whole world, it flooded the known world or that part of the world, then there would be other people. If you understand it to be a global flood, then you'll see Noah and his family, again, repopulating the entire earth. So that's how the people get there. How do different races get there? That would then, this is one of the arguments uh, for people to say that the different races have this common ancestor. I mean, that's a clearly a biblical idea, is that we are all brothers and sisters, literally, in some sense. But that uh, changes through time have resulted in that. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that some Christians wanna, want to understand some form of a theistic guided evolution. In other words, not a random evolution, not a Darwinian evolution, but that God was separating people out uh, by using the forces of uh, evolutionary forces. So that is one of the reasons a lot of people think God's using those natural processes and that we're distinguishing. Our next story, by the way, plays into that a little bit because it does tend to speak to the question of, well, if we're all bunched together, with Noah and we're starting over, how did all this scattering happen? Let's look at the story of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11 is this fascinating story. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And by the way, you could say, and the whole world all looked alike, right? We all look kind of like Noah. And so this, this story, it kind of speaks to all those ideas. The whole world had a common speech Guess which speech the Jews think that was? Hebrew. God spoke Hebrew when he created. Matter of fact, my Hebrew teacher uh, starts the class by saying, gentlemen, welcome to the language of Hebrew, the language that God spoke. And I thought, God, his tests are going to be hard. <laughs> but so they think it was Hebrew. So there's one speech. It says, as men moved eastward, as they began to expand and do what God told them, go fill the earth, they found a plain in Shinar, and settled there. A lot of argument about where this is, I'm just going to tell you, is the most people, not everybody, most people think this is Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. I'll show you a map here in a second. And so the people said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them. And they used brick instead of stone, and they used tar for mortar. And then they said, let's build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, and the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. That is a brilliant little story, a brilliant summation 
of this event in nine little verses, and there's so much there we could talk for hours about it. But I want to point out a couple of key ideas, and I want to tie it into history a little bit. First of all, there's, there's kind of a symmetry here. You see, the people, God says, go fill the earth, and what do they do? They get together and they go, nah, let's just hang around together and build a city. Do you see the continued theme of rebellion? Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They didn't do what he said. What are, what are these people doing? Same thing. He says, go, multiply, fill the earth, and they go, nah, we're not going to fill the earth. We like this place right here, and so we're going to build a city. Then they say, we're going to uh, build this city lest we be scattered and separated. In other words, security and safety are driving them. Who are they relying on? Well, not God. They're relying on themselves for their security and their safety. And so they're going to build a city, and they're going to be secure, and they're going to be safe that way. And so they say, come let us. Now you see the interesting uh, symmetry, because they say, come let us build so we won't be scattered. And God says, come let us go down and confuse, and they will be scattered. And so you see man and God still at odds. We still fail to do what God says. So you see this play of the will of man versus the will of God, and the will of God prevailing. And so you see this idea of man trying to gather, God trying to scatter. You see a brilliant little play on this in that, Man says, we're going to make a name for ourselves with this city. We're going to build a tower that reaches to heaven. Now, some have thought, have interpreted this as they're going to build a tower because they think they're going to go to heaven and they're going to conquer God and they're going to be God. That phrase is used in other ancient literature as kind of just a hyperbole. A tower that reaches to heaven just means we're going to make an awesome building that people will come from far and wide and that our tourism department will be booming. Everybody's going to want to see this thing. So that's all they're saying is we're going to build something massive that people will know who we are because we did something so good. So they said we're going to make a name for ourselves. So God comes down and he says he named the place Babel because it's there that he confused them. There's another play on the words here is the word Babel very similar to Babylon, and that's where people think this is. I mean, it's not where everyone thinks this is, but that's the traditional understanding, is this is Babylon, which is near Baghdad, uh, Iraq today. The ruins of Babylon are very close to Baghdad. So Babylon, the word Babel means the gateway of God. Now that's arrogant, isn't it? We're going to build this big thing, Babel. It's going to be the gateway of God. And in the Hebrew, God says but it's going to be called B-A-L-A-L, Balal, which means confused. And you see this nice little play on we're going to build the gateway of God. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be safe and we're going to be secure. And God says, actually, I'm going to name it Balal, confusion. You're now going to be scattered, and that's what happens. And so you see this irony in the story that as desperately as we want, self-sufficiency, security, that we want to be gods, God says it results in your being scattered. Well, let's talk about the archaeology of this. Where does this likely happen? Here's a little map of Iraq on the back. There's where uh, Mesopotamia is, and there are tons of extra-biblical legends and stories and archaeology 
about this idea of towers. Towers where they use that same phrase of towers that would ascend to the heavens. Towers that were used by kings for those same self-centered purposes of making a name for themselves. And so the left is a, kind of a blowing it up. This was thought to be, I'm going to show you a ziggurat, what's called a ziggurat, which is a tower, an ancient tower that comes from about the 21st century B.C., so about 4,200 years ago, you're going to see it's a little bit reconstructed. The facade has been reconstructed. The whole building hasn't. But this is in modern-day Iraq. It's called the Ziggurat at Ur. Now, Ur is going to show up again in our next lesson because around this time, Abraham's there. Abraham probably walked up those steps, same place the U.S. Army walked up those steps a few years ago in Iraq. That is the remains, a little bit refurbished remains, of the first layer of this ziggurat. The ziggurat looked like layered pyramids. Each layer would get smaller and smaller and smaller, but it became, in those days, massively high uh, tower. And so you see uh, the reconstruction version. Now imagine layer upon layer on it. That's what it's typically thought they were building. They weren't building something that reached to the sky. They were building something massive that would make a name for them that they thought this is the gateway to the gods. If you think about what you know from history, the idea of gods living in mountains, think fast forward to where Moses gets the law. He goes up on Mount Sinai. This is kind of a man-made mountain. We'll make our own gods. That's what the story of Babel is really about, is this idea of we are going to build our own gods. We're going to control our destiny. And the story of Babel actually proves to be quite true. God says, actually, you are building confusion. This won't bring you together. It will scatter you. And that is indeed the story of human history, is it really did uh, scatter us. And I want to show you that. I want to talk to you about it a little bit. Let's fast forward to modern times from the story of Babel. That makes sense? I went through it really quickly, but I want you to see what it's really trying to say. Is it rooted in archaeology? Yes, it is. And that ziggurat may very well be the Tower of Babel. It may not be the Tower of Babel, but it's very likely something like that. Think pyramids in Egypt, a little later than this, right around this time. And you'll see step pyramids, by the way, that looked a lot like that. The first pyramids weren't so uh, smoothly done. They were step pyramids. And so you see buildings like this. This is likely what's happening here. And God turns things around. He says, what you are trying to do is actually going to cause more alienation. And that's true. That's what's happened. Look today. Let me just fast forward. Let me show you the today's world's tallest building. The ziggurat was the tallest building in the world, actually, for a long time. Various estimates. Some would say it was a little over 30 meters high. Some would say it's as high as 90 meters. Man, that's nothing. This building is 828 meters tall. Now, the Saudis have announced that they're going to build a building taller than this. Uh, but today, this is the tallest building in the world. And it fundamentally is a monument, just like the Tower of Babel. It is a monument to our culture it is a monument to worshiping what we build with our own hands. It's a way to making a name for ourselves. 
And just like it did in the Tower of Babel, it is done today. It is the path to idolatry. It is the path to power. In those days, King Shulgi is, is the guy who uh, made the ziggurat at Ur, finished the ziggurat at Ur, and he was able to rule that whole area. He had the big mountain that showed his power. He was considered to be, he would go up there and he would make sacrifices to the gods, so he was thought to be partly a god himself. He leveraged that to rule a huge empire in that part of the world. The pharaohs did the same thing. They were god kings. They used it to rule the world. When you look at things like this, even today, that's still a symbol of power and ruling the world. We have our own Babels today, and in a really real sense, we are still the generation of Babel. What that leads to is something that's rampant to us, and that is materialism. The idea that safety, security, and meaning come from material things. That's exactly what was happening in Babel. Who did they trust? The God who said, go do what I told you and I'll take care of you? No, they said, no, thanks, we'll build a city. We're going to take care of ourselves. Did they value what God valued? Did they say, I want you to multiply, fill the earth, begin to live and learn to live in harmony with creation? No, actually, we're going to bulldoze the, the forests and we're going to build cities. Do you see in Babel, you see the same trends that are happening today, this idea of materialism. I'm going to show you graphically in our world what has happened with this pursuit of materialism. It scatters us. It doesn't just geographically, the story of Babel is a geographic scattering. It's an interpersonal scattering. In other words, we don't speak the same language. We're alienated in a real sense that we can't communicate. The people all disperse. They're physically scattered as well. In our society, you see huge scattering. I don't know if you think about it this way, but on the left, you see the idea of consumption in our world. On the right, you see the very real pictures of abject poverty in our world. <clears throat> I want you to understand the connection here. This is the story of Babel being played out to its conclusion. We are still the generation of Babel. Does that make sense? They were alienated by language. They were alienated by geography. They sought power one over another. Their self-interest became self-absorption, and it led to the devaluing of other people, with Cain and Abel the murder of other people, and then on through history it continues. Even in our world today, you see this, you can, this can't happen without some kind of devaluing. Some people are just worth more than other people. Now, I'm not here to advocate any political uh, redistribution of wealth or, or, or make a political point. I want you to understand the connection. The story of Babel is not an ancient fairy tale. It happened, and it's still happening. That alienation manifests itself in ways that you just may not have thought about in our world. Stop and think about how, how very much alienated, how very scattered we are in spirit as well as in body. This is a manifestation of the uh, Tower of Babel. Well, there's one more way that I want you to think about this that's very personal. You can look at that and you say, yes, that's the world and we don't buy into that. No, we don't. In fact, Jesus Christ calls us to go bring healing to that world. 
clearly spiritual healing, we now can die to that self-centered person and live in newness of life. And we can go do reconciliation to the world. Christians are very interested in feeding the people on the right half of that thing, not because they're important people or they're worth anything economically, but because they're created in the image of God. And so we begin to bring healing to this world. But here's the temptation that we face. Let's just talk about us. We face the same temptation that they did at Babel. They said, God said, go scatter, but you know what? There are thunderstorms, there's all kinds of things. The wind's really cold. Why don't we all just sort of huddle up here and build a city? And you know, the city's so nice. We're just putting in a 12-screen cinemaplex. Soccer fields are finally taking root over here. Let's just sort of all stay here together. In other words, instead of going out into the world like God told them, they huddled up. We too need to be careful. What was our command, by the way? God commands him, go fill the earth, multiply. I want you to get out there and go be in this creation. Was the great commission of Jesus. It wasn't go fill the earth and multiply. The earth, you know, people are scattered. What did it say? Go and teach every, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, baptizing Father, Son, and Father. Bottom line, what does he say? Get out into my world and go do my business. We have the same commission that Adam and Eve had and that Noah had. And our tendency as Christians is still to huddle up, isn't it? And so the challenge for us out of the Tower of Babel, we can look at the world and say, yes, those worldly people, they have a problem. We have the same temptation of huddling up here in our churches, in our safe little enclaves, and go, do you realize what a crazy world it is out there? Yes, it is, and that's our charge, is to go take reconciliation. Does that make sense? This Tower of Babel, I want, the more you think about Babel, the more you realize, whoa, this is human nature, even Christian human nature, and God has some powerful things to say to us about that. You also see God's consistency. He wanted them to go out and learn to live in harmony with the world that he'd made. He wants us to go out and bring harmony to the world that's in, in disrepair, and we, we have to overcome those same tendencies. Well, let me pause there, and then I want to show you one final interesting little connection that's really meaningful to us as Christians. Question? Yes. Is it part of the nature of our relationship with God that even in our greatest efforts to reach him, there will always be mystery, and God will scatter our understanding so that mystery or awe will always remain? Is God purposeful in this? Yeah, you do see several times in Scripture, just to speak briefly to that, where Jesus even said, they will be, he's quoting a prophet, they'll be ever hearing but never understanding. He says, I speak to them in parables so that they will not understand. There's a certain purposefulness in God of making it clear to us how we do not understand him. God says, your ways are not my ways. I'm higher than you are. So there is a gulf. And this is part of the gospel. The gospel isn't just Jesus loves you. The gospel is you desperately need help. I desperately need help. Part of this is God making it clear to us that we are alienated. There's no good news that says you're reconciled to God if you don't realize we have a real problem. I mean, I hope you look at that slide and realize we have deep-seated problems. The good news is God's going to reconcile that. So I do think that that gulf is important and plays a part with God, but God is reaching across that gulf in the person of Jesus Christ to bring us back.
Good question. Okay. Um, Mesopotamia is commonly known as the location of the first civilizations. Do you think that the people making the Tower of Babel were those people in early Mesopotamia? Good question. Yes, many people understand that this is, pre I told you this is the end of prehistory, and now with the Abraham story, which fascinating story, takes up right where this leaves off, and God takes an interesting little turn in dealing with us. But yes, many people want to situate this right in that time period. Again, where this archaeology shows up, maybe 21st century BC. So many people think that that civilization is what the Bible's talking about. So we're moving out of, can't really date this into, hmm, maybe. And then with Abraham, oh, we, we start to learn a lot about his world and we can identify him and we'll talk about the archeology. span In fact, one of our questions next week will be, did Abraham really exist or was he kind of like King Arthur? But we'll talk about that next time. Okay, I have a request for your opinion on the latest events in the Middle East and the atrocities committed by ISIS in relationship to these ideas. Yeah, so the atrocities committed by ISIS. Okay, here's, I'm gonna say something that might make you mad. Uh, ISIS is evil, but so is everybody else. Now, don't misunderstand, it doesn't mean what they did is right. My point is you are getting a glimpse into the heart of humanity. And if you or I think that we are fundamentally better, now don't misunderstand me, I do not think that you will go cut somebody's head off. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying to you that if you or I think, well, they're evil, I'm not, that's, that's an illusion. They just happen to be the absolute, they've just taken this idea, this self-centered and self-absorption. Imagine the generation of Noah, that's probably what it looked like. If you read Genesis chapter six, imagine ISIS running the world. That's kind of the image of that. That is the, the tendency of humanity. That's our trajectory without Jesus Christ. It, it's horrific and it is shocking, but it should not shock us that that's what human beings do when they get alienated from God. That is the end point of that. Does that make sense? Yes, it's horrible. It is completely predictable. It is within the heart of man, obviously, to do unbelievable things. And it does take Jesus Christ to die to the old man. I do think, by the way, this is an opinion, you may agree or disagree. I think terrorism, in certain senses, is one of those things that cannot be fixed with a patch. As an opinion, I believe it's something that's gonna have to be dealt with in the next generation. I think it's something we ought to think about. In other words, I'm not so sure, like the generation of Noah, that you can go to those people and say, you know, if you'll sit down for five minutes, we'll have a talk and a Starbucks coffee, and you'll walk out of here, and you just won't even think of doing that again. I don't think so. I think that may be one of those, we need to rebuild a generation that does not have that so deeply ingrained. Well, let me make one last connection. This idea of, of Babel, this idea of, our will being pitted against God, and we want to gather, God ends up scattering. We end up scattering ourselves. There's an interesting little event in the book of Acts. This is right after Jesus' resurrection. He tells his disciples, not many of them still around at that point, about 120 people, it says, who were not so afraid that they'd scattered and gone underground. And he gives them the great commission, right? He says, I want you to go into all the world. They're like, you're kidding me. 
I mean, just us, he's, yeah. You guys want you to go out there, just like I told Noah, go out there and bring, take harmony to the world. Tell them the good news about me. Teach them to obey everything that I commanded. So that's what he tells them. So then they walk out. He says, and by the way, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, and this Spirit is going to transform you. He's going to transform this world. And so they walk out on the day of Pentecost. It was a, it was a, you know where this is going. It was a feast day, and they walk out, and here's what happened. He said, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages. They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this, now where did these people come from? They all scattered at Babel. They speak different languages. The crowd came together because everybody heard them speaking in their own language. Utterly amazed, they said, aren't these guys all Galileans? How can we possibly each hear them in all these languages? There were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, all over the world, Egyptians, Libyans, everywhere. He said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Let me tell you what that means. This event, stop and think about it. If Jesus wanted to make an impact on the world, you don't have to do this. He could have said, look, here's what you're going to do, Harry Potter. You're going to take your wand out, and you're going to make some great sky, you know, stuff in the sky. You're going to you know, make things appear. In other words, if you're God... You can impress people a lot of ways. Why this? Now you understand why this. He is undoing Babel. That's what Jesus came to do. Our willful pride said, we'll take care of ourselves. We're proud of the work of our own hands. We're going to make a name for ourselves." And we made a world that looked like that slide you just saw. And we became scattered. And we became confused. And we began to separate in our language and everything else. Pentecost comes and says, I'm going to give you a little sign. The my spirit is going to speak something that everybody understands. Do you see what's happening? He said, I came to undo Babel. That's your mission. That's our mission. God is on a mission to finally undo Babel. And that story is going to end in the book of Revelation, but it's going on right now. We're going to go speak a common language to the world through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's why that happened. God is finally bringing this full circle and said, I'm ready now to undo what you did at the Tower of Babel. And that's what we get to be a part of. Powerful idea. In our next lesson, what is God going to do? He's still got... Noah and those guys, he's got all those guys in Babel. How is he going to get them to move forward? They act like a bunch of two-year-olds. I mean, they're just at each other's throats. They're not behaving very well. God's going to do something really unique. He's going to deal with these two-year-olds the way you would deal with two-year-olds. He's going to pick a favorite. Did that work for you? He's going to pick a favorite kid, and he's going to lift him up, and he's going to do some amazing things. And that's the story of Abraham, and that's what we'll talk about next time. So go undo the babble in the world. See you guys.